0: Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and open with me to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1 is where we're going to be as we start our summer series, and we're going to be in the next 10 weeks in the book of Exodus. We're going to walk through the first 15 chapters. I'm going to give you just a second to to be fine in Exodus. It's really important uh, that you do that either on your device or in your Bible in front of you. Exodus chapter 1. Psalm 66, verses 5-7 through seven say, Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in His deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land, and they pass through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in Him who rules by His might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations, and let not the rebellious exalt themselves. This summer, we're walking through Exodus and Exodus is an invitation to come and see. Come and see a God who has more power than you can possibly imagine. A God who is so powerful that at His command through the staff of a normal man, the seas part and the nation of Israel walk through. Come and see a God who is so sovereign that kings rise and kings fall, and yet He is over them all. Come and see a God who lets not the rebellious boast for long as He puts them back down in their place. Exodus is an invitation, y'all are so much better than the 950 services, let me say that. Y'all are like, yeah, preacher, that's good, good introduction, preacher, right, 950 is like, man, this dude's tough, all right. Exodus is an invitation to come and see you, now, here's why we're talking about this today. You might be wondering why we would start our summer, right, this is the first week- uh, weekend of summer, congratulations, teachers, you made it, uh, amen, all right, <laughs> yeah, he's a amen. You might be wondering why we would start our summer by looking at an Old Testament book like Exodus. Most of us know the story, right? We're at least familiar with it. But if we're honest, it may seem distant and like it has very little impact on here and now as we live in 2022, right? Most of us are at least familiar with the story. We're we're VBS babies, right? If you grew up with me, we're, we're in the whole Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go, huh, right? Like we know it. But if we were honest, like we read it for ourselves and this just seems a little bit like it's unapplicable to our life, especially when there are so many other things that we could be talking about, right? You come in here this morning and right, I know what it's like on Sunday morning. There ain't no fight like a good Sunday morning fight with your spouse, right? And your marriage is just at a different place than it's ever been before and you're you're navigating that. And man, maybe your kids are just wilding out, right? And you're like, man, you're preaching on Exodus and I would just really love it if you gave me three weeks on parenting, right? Or maybe you're, like, you're, you're in the middle of a big transition and you need to know God's will. And so with all this other stuff that we could be talking about, and all that's good stuff, we'll talk about it at some point. But why would we take now to stop and actually look at the book of Exodus? And here's what I want you to understand. We're going through the book of Exodus this summer so that we might come... And see God. Because a right view of God impacts every area of your life. Such that if we see God rightly, and we know Him truly, our lives start to be formed into a mold that glorifies Him. Here's what that means. We begin to, as we see God rightly, become the kind of spouse that God intends for us to be. Such that as we see God rightly, we become the kind of parents that God intends for us to be. Such that we can determine God's will for our life if we see God rightly. So I say all this this morning to to just say, this is why we're going through the book of Exodus. So we can see God and be changed into God's image. So this series matters. It's really important. So with that in mind, I'm going to do what we should do every week what I I hope we do every week, and I'm going to pray that God would bless our time together. Would you pray with me? God, I just understand uh, very well, God, that I am but a foolish man and a foolish mouthpiece, so that over the next few minutes, what I'm asking is that your scripture be exalted, and dear God, my opinion be laid low, so that your glory might be known. Let me speak the right words, let your people hear the right words, and let the power of the Holy Spirit permeate this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's talk a little bit about what Exodus is. We're going to get into the sermon in just a second. But to do that, we've got to have a kind of a background of what is actually going on in Exodus. So let's talk about it in a second. If you've got your Bible, look at Exodus 1, verses 1 through 7. Let's talk about some background. Here's what Scripture says. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were seventy. Persons, that number is really important, 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, then Joseph died and all his brothers in that generation. Verse 7 may be one of the most important uh, verses in the Bible and the Old Testament to talk about the promise of God coming true. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, the first seven verses of Exodus kind of give us some background into what's going on as we start this book. I need you to understand something. Exodus is the continued story from Genesis. Exodus is not a new story. It is the same story that's being told in, in, in Genesis such that if you could actually read Hebrew, Exodus opens with the word and. And these are the sons of Israel. Now, isn't that a weird way to start a book? unless it's actually the continuation of what's happening in Genesis, And Exodus is the second book of a five-book section of the Bible where this story is being told out. Exodus is the second book of the Pentateuch, all right? Now, I'm going to make you sound really smart with your friends. We're going to say that together. Say with me, Pentateuch. Man, you guys are so smart, right? It's almost like you're Bible scholars. Exodus is the second book of this five books, this Pentateuch, this section of five books, That is telling the same story now exodus in particular is the story of how god multiplied his people and redeemed his people the reason why this is really important is if you know your bible you know that god made a promise in genesis to abraham that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars right the only problem with this is that genesis ends and this promise has not been fulfilled As a matter of fact, Abraham dies, and do you know how many legitimate descendants he had? I say legitimate, there were some illegitimate ones, but that's for a different sermon, okay? Do you know how many legitimate descendants Abraham had? Just the one. So that he dies with a promise and no fulfillment. And Genesis, as a matter of fact, goes on, and it ends, and the promise is not that been fulfilled, that Abraham's going to have descendants as numerous as the stars, because guess what? We can count them. And Exodus starts with a counting. It says there were 70 of them. And so Exodus is the story of how this promise that was made in Genesis is actually going to be fulfilled because look what happens in verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. How greatly? The people came into Egypt with 70. The people will go out of Egypt, as we're going to read about in Exodus chapter 12, numbering 600,000 men, not counting the women and children. This is the story of God's promise coming to fruition. And most importantly, Exodus is the Old Testament gospel because it is a story of how a people enslaved and unable to help themselves find from God a Redeemer who has come to deliver them from the bondage that they could never deliver themselves from. So Exodus may not feel like it applies to you. Here's what I want you to understand. Exodus is our story as Christians. Now, with all of that said, here's what I want to do. I want us to see God. I want us to learn about God from Exodus. So what I want to do is ask this question. We're going to go through Exodus chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 2 today, and I want us to answer this question. What do we see about God in Exodus from the very beginning? Exodus 1 and Exodus 2, and here's what we're going to see. I'm going to go ahead and lay it out for you where we're going today so there are just no questions. Here's what we see. God sees the trouble of His people and moves to save his people, God sees his people when they are in trouble, and God moves towards his people when they are in trouble. That's what we're going to see in Exodus one and two today. Start with me by looking. We're going to start at the very end of Exodus chapter two, and we'll work our way back through this text. We got a lot of text to cover with me, so I need you to put on your thinking cap. All right, Exodus chapter two, starting in verse twenty-three. Here's what the Bible says: During those days, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out to help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. I love that. It says it came up. It's like, it's like a, a smell rising up to God. Verse 24. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Listen, this may be one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Here's what we're going to see, two things today from Scripture. We're going to see that God sees His people when they're in trouble, and then God moves towards His people in trouble. Let's start with the first one, God sees. Look with me back at Exodus chapter 1, let's see what's going on uh, as these people are in much trouble. Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 22, I'm going to kind of give us some commentaries we go to kind of fill in the blanks, Okay. Verse 8 says this, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. What is going on here? We're told in Exodus chapter 1 that the political situation has changed since the people of Israel came into the land. It says that a new king arose over Egypt and he did not know Joseph. That is a very important detail because if you remember in Genesis, Joseph was the connection between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel. Why is that? Joseph was the one who spared the people of Egypt from massive famine such that as long as the king of Egypt remembered Joseph, the people of Israel were safe. But time passed, and Joseph died, and the people of Israel multiplied and grew. And as all of this happened, a new king arose to the throne who did not know Joseph. Now what do we know about this new king? Evidently he was an insecure tyrant. Because as he looked out across the, the, the landscape of Egypt, what he saw was that the people of Israel had multiplied greatly and he was afraid. And in his fear, he begins to isolate the people of Israel. And he says to the people of Egypt, we need to deal with this problem because if they join with our enemies, the Hebrew people can, t- can overthrow our government. Through fear, he begins to isolate the Jewish people. Now here's why this is important. I want to point out something to you. That this is not something that's happened only one time in history. This this echoes of, uh, of 1940s when the Nazi regime regime said to themselves, we've got a Jewish problem. That's what the king of Egypt is doing here. He's looking at the landscape of he's looking at the landscape of Egypt and he's saying we've got a Hebrew problem that if these people are not taken care of, they're going to be a problem for us. So what does the king of Egypt do? Look with me at verse 11. Therefore... Exodus 1 verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Isn't this crazy? The, the king of Egypt is trying to suppress the people of God. And the more the king of Egypt fights against the plan of God, the more the plan of God prospers. Then look at verse 13. So what did they do? The people of Egypt, made, they, made, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field and in all the work, they made them ruthlessly work as slaves. Now notice the repetition that's going on here. And notice the progression. The king of Pharaoh isolates the people of Egypt, uh, the people of Israel, and he, 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 he sows seeds of fear. And then... Here's what he does. He moves to make the people of Egypt enslave them. It says they made them ruthlessly work as slaves. This is a plan to deal with the Hebrew problem. I want you to see this. But this evidently was not enough for Pharaoh. He's looking out and he's growing more and more fearsome. Then the king of Egypt said, verse 15, to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah, and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool. If it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Now, I want you to understand what's going on here, because the temptation in the 21st century world is to begin to sanitize the scripture when we read stuff like this. Well, I don't know what that meant. He was was killing babies. That sounds horrible. And we distance ourselves from it without understanding what's happening. The king of Egypt has sent out a decree to the the people helping the, the women give birth that if an Israelite child is born, you should bash its head in with a rock if it's a boy. This is horrible. The girls, they're okay because we can use them. We can either sell them into trafficking or make them our, our servants, but the boys, we have to kill every threat. And I love what the Scripture kind of puts forth. These Hebrew midwives, they, what it is, is these are the two ladies who are over the other Hebrew midwives, right? They're not doing it all themselves. But they, they, they kind of put out word, and they have an option. They can fear Pharaoh and obey his commands, or they can fear God and obey his commands. Now, here's what I love. We talk about the courageous men of the Bible all the time. Can we talk about the courageous women of the Bible here? Because they were signing their death warrants. And in verse 18, here's what happens. The king of Egypt called the midwives. They're, they're going in. This is going to be bad. Why have you done this and let the male children live? Verse 19. The mid, this is the funniest verse in the Bible. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. I love this. Pharaoh, them Hebrew women, they're different. they just strong, Pharaoh. (laughs) This this is kind of deception. This is mocking him. But Pharaoh's still not satisfied. He moves from slavery to infanticide or abortion to outright genocide. Verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people grew, multiplied and grew very strong. Verse 21, And because the midwives feared God, God gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people. Notice what he's saying. Not the midwives. Any Egyptian. Every son that is born into the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. I wanna, let's point out the first thing I want you to see today. Even in the midst of impossible circumstances, even when everything seems to be falling apart, God still sees you and God still knows what is going on. Look what, God saw the people of Israel in their oppression and God had not forgotten them. Let's think about their persecution for a second. This persecution was severe. Let's not miss their pain because of the distance between us historically. These people were being exploited and used as slave labor. The greatness of the Egyptian society, right? We learn about the greatness of the Egyptian society in our history classes in school. But the greatness of the Egyptian society was built on the back of the Israelites. And we talk about the benefits of capitalism a lot, right, in in, in this country, and that's good. What are the benefits of capitalism? You work hard and you enjoy the fruits of your labor. I want you to understand, this is the opposite of that. They are working hard and someone else is enjoying the benefits of their labor. This is outright enslavement. But that maybe doesn't even compare to the fact that their children were being killed. Imagine the heartbreaking anguish of these mothers that if their children survived the labor and delivery process, They had to be worried about the moment when they got old enough to take them out of the hut that any random Egyptian could come up and throw the baby in the river. That's pain. Now the question for us is how does what was happening to them at this time apply to us? And here's what we got to remember. In the midst of this, God had not forgotten them. You see, there's a temptation in the Christian life to begin to believe that as soon as things do not go according to your plan, that God must have forgotten you. Right? You're going through life and here's how you think things should be. Are you going through life and they don't go that way and then you get a diagnosis that you didn't want and the bills stack up quicker than you thought they should or somebody does something stupid in your life and causes a lot of pain and, or you do something stupid in your life and cause a lot of pain and as you go, you can begin to look out and say, well, somehow God must have forgotten me. And here's what I want you to understand. God had not forgotten the people of Israel. And God has not forgotten you. God sees and God knows. Now here's what you need to know. You don't have to understand how the plan's coming together. Can I tell you? The people of Israel did not understand what was happening. They probably thought, man, it seems like he's forgotten us. But understand this. If you are human and God is not, there are going to be times in your life where you don't understand everything God's doing. I heard an illustration that put it this way, and I think this is the best way to understand it. There are things in this life that I understand that my five-year-old does not. Why? Because I'm 27. I have a mortgage. I, 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 know, I have to pay bills. I have to pay car insurance, right? I, I, know, I have been around a little bit enough, not a long, as long as some of y'all got help. All right, that was a joke. To, but I've been around enough to know how the world works. My five-year-old has not. Why? Because there's 22 years of difference between us. If there are things in this life that I understand by 22 years of experience that my 5-year-old does not, does it not stand to reason that there are things in this world that an omnipotent, omniscient God may understand that we do not? You see, here's the deal. We don't have to understand how God's working, but here's what we have to take by faith. That God hasn't forgotten us. God saw them and God remembered them. Now, he saw their oppression, but I also want to point this out to you. God saw the evil days in which they lived. Now, if I can be very honest with you, here's what I want you to understand. I prayed this week not for the entire message. As I prayed this week, I specifically prayed and asked God if I should say what I'm about to say over the next five minutes. Because here's what I know. If I offend you at any point in today's message, it's going to be over the next five minutes. And if I do, here's what I want you to do. My email is wayne.bray <laughs> at firstbaptistsensenville.org. Okay? Keep that in your file. But seriously, I was struck by the evil day in which these people found themselves. The people of God surrounded by an incredibly evil society. Yet God did not forget about the people of God in the midst of this society. He knew that they were living in an evil day. Now, my trouble with this is the temptation for us to read this and to only read it as if we were the people of Israel at this time, just pure and innocent, living in the midst of an evil society. Now, we should read it that way because we are the people of God, they were the people of God, and and we are the people of God in the midst of an evil society. But what I want you to understand is that when when there are times in our life where we coincide with the evil that is in society, we should seek to repent of the evil that is in society that we contribute to and run in the direction toward the people of God. Let me explain to you what I mean. I was especially humbled as I read through this between the connection between the Egyptian society and our own. And here's what I mean. The epitome of a society bent on evil and rebellion against God is a society where it is okay with exploitation and enslavement, and encourages the murder of children. And if we can all be historically honest for a few moments, America has a sad history on both of these accounts. The society in which we live has a sad history on both these accounts. And let me deal with each of these issues. First of all, I want to make clear that it is our national shame that slavery is so intertwined with American history. And in a day filled with racial tensions and heightened racial awareness, we should all acknowledge that one of our nation's greatest rebellions against God was slavery and the subsequent racism that that still lives because of it. Now, I use that word acknowledge carefully. Because let me be clear, I am not asking anyone to feel guilty for past national sins, okay? But I am saying that as a church that intends to be multi-ethnic, we better at least be willing to say what the Bible says. And that is that all forms of slavery and subsequent racism are evil. And now let me just say, I don't know why this is remotely controversial. It is not CRT to acknowledge our past failures. See, and let me be clear. CRT is weakened and divisive. But acknowledgement of past failures and repentance of personal failures is not CRT. If one of y'all send me an email this week saying I've gone woke, I swear I'm going to lose it. Because all we want to do is say what Scripture says. And here's why this is so important. Listen, I love you, but look around a second. As a church that is predominantly white, we better be willing to say what the Bible says. Otherwise, I don't think that our African-American brothers and sisters should be willing to worship with us. Some of y'all are just like, man, I don't know what this preacher's talking about. It's all right. We're gonna let me, let me offend the rest who weren't mad there, all right? <laughs> it is equally morally abominable that our nation has been so complicit in the death of babies yet born for the past 60 years. And I have yet to address this from this pulpit. Because in a, you may not recognize this, but in a church our size, there are a variety of political opinions. And I know when we start to talk about abortion or a woman's right to choose, as some have dubbed it, that there are a variety of policy opinions that don't really, uh, that are a little bit different than just a moral opinion. And so we are a church of wide political opinions. But here's what I want you to understand I am not a politician and I am not a policy wonk, I am a preacher. At best, I am some days a theologian and I am your pastor. So let me say this with clarity. I cannot imagine a context in which the people of God should not rejoice in the reports that Rome might be overturned and us in this room, we should pray that God would hasten the day. That was the weakest applause I've ever heard. And here's why this is important. When society is bent toward evil, and we want to live as the people of God in society, we've got to determine that where society is determined to go evil, we're going to run toward the people of God. And we're going to live by the word of God, and we're going to embrace a different standard. And so here's what that means. Liberals, conservatives, we're going to make everybody mad. Because we have a higher allegiance than the Pledge of Allegiance. And I say that, I love my country. This is the best place in the world. But it's important to remember that a society determined to rebel against God cannot be descriptive of the people of God. Alright, W. Bray at First Baptist at Sensenville emails. Would, he would love to hear them If We're going to move on because I've offended everybody equally in this moment, okay? Last thing. So we see that God sees us in our pain. This is really important to understand. God sees, but I also want us to be aware of this. God moves. God moves towards us in our pain. Here's why this is really important. A God who only sees us in our pain is not useful for us. Can I, I don't have time for a God who sees my pain, but for a God who is unwilling to do anything about my pain. You know what that's called? That's called deism. Uh, and deism was really big in the 17th and 18th century. What deism, be, be, de, people who are deists believe, they believe God wound up the top, right? He wound up the clock, and then he it down and watched it, and he just watches everything. So they believe that a God who sees, but the idea that God would move into our area and do something for us, that's just unheard of. And here's what I want you to, to know. We are so far from that. We don't believe God just sees. We believe God sees and moves. And here's why this is really important. Because we're introduced to Moses in Exodus chapter 2, and we're introduced to Moses because what God wants us to know is not only that He sees our pain, but He's going to send someone to take care of our pain. Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Here's what the Bible says. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Let me pause there. You know who's writing the book of Exodus? Moses. You know what Moses just said about himself? Moses is like, that baby when he was born was fine, (laughs) y'all. Moses is like, y'all, I look good from the womb. This is like, I have to believe this is like the, the pre-Christ version of like Facebook. Y'all posting selfies, right? This is Moses giving himself a little shout out here. Verse 3, And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed him on the reeds. I'm not going to read the rest for time. Let me just tell you what happens. Moses' mom takes him, puts him in a basket, puts him in the Nile, and Pharaoh's daughter finds him. Pharaoh's daughter finds him. Moses' mom is then brought in to nurse the Hebrew child. And then when the, when the Hebrew child that Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter finds is of age, he goes and lives inside the Egyptian king's palace. This is the most ironic turn of events in the course of history. That you have this Egyptian Pharaoh seeking to kill all of the Hebrews. And that God, in his sense of humor makes the person who would deliver the Hebrews be nurtured and raised in the king's palace. Isn't this awesome? guys? like, I'll show you something. <laughs> and, but as we see, we see that God's moving toward his people. Now, here's what I really want to point out in this. God moves to save his people in the actions of normal people. Look with me at verses 1, 2, and 3 again. This is really amazing to me. But what happens in verse 1, 2, and 3? Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife, a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and saw that she bore a son. Now, think about this, this moment for me. In everyday life, this doesn't seem like all that courageous of an act, right? This seems like the way history goes, right? Man meets woman, they fall in love, get married, have babies, right off into the sunset. But this is an extraordinary act of courage when children are being murdered. What mother, I'm yelling a lot, let me me stop. What mother, when children are being murdered, would look out and say, you know what I want to do right now? Have a baby. But these two people took courage and chose to live a normal life anyway. It was the normal actions of normal people that God intended to bring about the salvation of all of Israel. This should speak volumes to those of us in the room. The best way to fight back against a society determined to do evil is to take courage and live a God-honoring, normal life. I want to make sure you know something. God does not need you to be the Apostle Paul. I think we kind of get mixed up today in modern Christianity where... We, just, we kind of buy into the whole like Disney thing, everybody's special, right? And so we kind of read and we're like, man, the Apostle Paul, I'm kind of like him. Listen, I love you. There was one Apostle Paul, you ain't it. I'm not it. And here's what, that's really freeing. God doesn't need you to be the Apostle Paul. You know what God needs you to do? Nothing. But he needs you to be a normal, obedient follower of Christ. Such that, let me just tell you God's will for your life if you're in this room and you're young and you're trying to figure out what God wants you to do. Here's what God wants you to do. God wants you to get married, unless you're called to singleness, get married, have babies, teach them about Jesus, tell them how to live God-honoring lives, tell them how to witness and tell other people about Jesus, model it for them, and then watch God change the world one child disciple at a time. This is how the plan of God goes forward. Through the everyday normal obedience of a people just like me and you. So let me ask you this. How can you live a normal, God-honoring life that pushes the kingdom forward? How can you parent your children? How can you go to your job? How can you love your neighbors in a normal way that pushes the kingdom of God forward? Here's the last thing I want you to see. God moves despite our failures. I'm not going to read this for the sake of time, but if you go, I want you to go home and read Exodus 2, 11 through 22. And there, we're reintroduced to Moses as a man. Now, we're told in Acts that Moses at this point is 40 years old. Here's what that means. For the past four decades, he's been brought up in Egyptian society. He is now cultured. He is now educated. He is now uh, primed to deliver the people of Israel. And as he's walking out of the palace one day, he comes across the people of Israel, and he sees an Egyptian man striking an Israelite man. Now, in his heart, Moses knows that he is still a Hebrew person, that he is still uh, an Israelite, and he hates the suffering his people are under. So as he sees the Egyptian striking the Hebrew, what does he do? I love this. The Bible says he looked this way and that. And then he went and struck the man down and hit him in the sand. Now, let's just be honest, and we're talking in the natural course of how we think about things. God had planned to use Moses to deliver Israel. At this point, with Moses guilty of first-degree murder, we can safely assume that he's going to move on to somebody else, right? But no. What does he do? He calls out Moses into the wilderness, and he prepares Moses to be the one to go back and deliver the people of Israel. And here's why that's really beautiful. If God was not through with Moses after premeditated murder, God's not through with you. Think about it. Moses, this is first degree, guys. It wasn't a rage killing. You want to know how Moses literally writes the confession statement. He says, "He looked this way and that." Here's what that means. If nobody's around, I'm about to smoke this fool, right? That's premeditated. The jury's jury's marking him off. He's going to jail. Yet God still used him. But there are people in this room who think that you have sinned so much and so often that God can't use you anymore. And here's what I'm telling you. If God's not done with Moses, God's not done with you. You can still live an everyday obedient life to the glory of God and to the advancement of His kingdom. Let me close it this way. The, we're told that God moves and raises up, raises up a deliverer. Here's why this is important. The story of Exodus is God raising up a deliverer for the people of Israel. The story of the Bible is God raising up a deliverer for the people of God. And where Moses was a fallen, broken man who, could, who, who tried his best but was never good enough, God Himself came to us and lived a perfect life. God Himself came to us and never sinned. And God Himself came to us and died on the cross for our failures. So that, listen, Mo- Moses didn't see and Moses didn't know. God saw and God, know, God knew. And guess what? We're told that Jesus saw his people in their trouble and that he moved in to save them. We know this because he came and died on a cross for us. So my invitation to you this week as we start through the book of Exodus is this. Come and see. Come and see a God who's got more grace than you'll ever need. Come and see a God who's got more power than you could have ever imagined. Come and see. And as you come and see, respond to Him. What's your next step this morning? Is that you need to join? You need to become a member? You need to be baptized? Maybe you need to surrender your life to Christ for the first time. Come and see, and then respond. Will you pray with me? God, I have no doubt that I probably said something that was out of of my bounds, and I pray that you would forgive me for that, and I pray that you would erase erase from the people's memory anything that I said that was not from you. And dear God, I pray that the words of Scripture would rise back to the top of our memory this morning and that the Holy Spirit would use Scripture to convict us and to move us and to help us know you more. God, we are serious people about a serious God. And we humble ourselves before you, you great God, you mighty God, And we come and we see that you are all we need. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.